Hello and welcome to the One Football Premier League podcast. City are the noisiest of neighbours. There's magic from Coutinho. Life after Bielsa for Leeds, plus plenty more on today's podcast. As joining myself, Matt Frodick, are Lewis Ambrose. Hello. And Alex Mott. Hello. I heard you had a very busy weekend, Alex. It was sort very of by busy, yourself yeah. in the newsroom. Yeah, I was on shift both days this weekend, and there was uh, there was plenty to do. Not, I wasn't bored. Put it that way. Does this mean you caught every single bit of football, and there won't be a stat that I can't did, catch yeah. you out on? Well, let's not. I'm not promising anything, but yeah, I, I caught pretty much everything. Okay, ballsy, ballsy statement <laughs> there, Lewis. How was your weekend? Um, probably a little bit more relaxed than Alex's by some of things. Um, yeah, it was it was a pleasant weekend. Thanks, Matt. Topped off by an Arsenal win on Sunday. Topped off by an Arsenal victory for you. We'll get to that in a second because we will, of course, start with the Manchester derby. Although I think derby is actually being polite because the derby sort of conveys that it is to be a tough contest between the two. But this was anything but with Manchester City running out 4-1 winners at the Etihad. Um Alex, is there a better player in these big games than Kevin De Bruyne? This season alone, the equaliser at Anfield, which could be a big point towards the end of the season, the decisive goal versus Chelsea as well in January, um, and now this performance. Yeah, he was he was sensational, really. And uh, he scored the two goals and set another one up as well. But yeah, I thought he was he was just brilliant all day. I think he came off eighty minutes, and it was uh, yeah, standing ovation from pretty much everyone in the. In the ground, he was. It wasn't just his goals; though. it was his work rate defensively was really good. The way he just sort of found pockets of space constantly. He just he gave Fred and McTominay and just a complete schooling and how to play the central midfielder. I thought, and yeah, I think it was Paul Scholes earlier today said there's not a better better midfielder in the Premier League right now. And yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. He was he was sensational and he was the person that City built most of their attacking play around and he, yeah, he was one of many but he, yeah, he stood out massively for me he was, he was so good Do you think the pundits always come out with these amazing sort of quotes like that when it's blatantly obvious? I'd love to well, see Skulls come out with that when De Bruyne has <laughs> dropped an absolute stinker right Yeah but that's well there's not often that De Bruyne <laughs> drops, a, drops a clanger really is yeah, there to be honest true. that's why he's so good but yeah like you said he's just decisive in big games and I mean whether this was theoretically a big game or not is probably a, another question. But um, yeah, I thought he was he was head and shoulders above everyone else for me. And the other day, he was yeah, he was he was sensational. It, it, I I would I would say it's a big game because of the rivalry, but the golfing class between the two yeah, was ridiculous. It, was, it really was sort of men against boys at times, especially in that's. I mean, if, actually, do you know what? The first half, I thought United did okay. Um, they weren't completely overall by City. They, they really held their own, I thought, and, and looked maybe not dangerous, but they certainly held their own against them. But then, yeah, second half, City just took it to a whole different level, really. And yeah, that, that stat towards the end in the final 15 minutes with them having 92% possession. Sometimes stats can lie a little bit, but yeah, it really it, that one really didn't. They were just, yeah, they were all over Man United towards the end. It was a little bit embarrassing, really. But from the other side, are we being a little bit harsh on Manchester United, Lewis? Were they really expected to do anything against this Manchester City team? I don't think we're being harsh because Man United should be doing something against Manchester City. Man United should be trying to win the Premier League and be at the top of the Premier League. The thing that surprises me a little bit, or maybe surprise is the wrong word, but the fact that these conversations are happening now about Man United not being good enough or like, well, I think, you know, drawing at home against Watford the other week and... 
the result they got at Burnley as well, and those sorts of results. They're the ones that are holding Man United back. Like Any team on the planet could go to Man City and Liverpool could go there and let him fall, or Bayern Munich or whoever could go there and let him fall because City are just so good. Um, obviously, it, I guess it's that contrast is there directly when it's the derby and you see how far behind United are. But I don't think... I'm a, li- a little bit surprised just that that everybody seemed so surprised by it all. Like, to me, it was really, really obvious, or it felt quite obvious that this was going to happen, and you sort of expect this to happen when they them two play each other now. So, yeah, like, I don't think we're being harsh on United because that sh- should be what they should be aspiring to, but I don't think it should have shocked anybody that that happened on Sunday. Alex, you wanted to talk a, a little bit about Aaron Wan-Bissaka, so tell us what's <laughs> on your mind because I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, well, how long have you got, really? I just, I, I was reading something earlier on about, um, there were uh, maybe about a year ago, 18 months ago, people were sort of comparing Wan-Bissaka and Maguire to Van Dijk and um, Trent Alexander-Arnold and how, they, you know, they are comparable in the, the way they're playing and what they're doing for both clubs. I mean, it literally couldn't be further from the truth now, could it? Um I was saying yesterday to a few friends on WhatsApp, I don't think I've ever seen Juan Bazaka play well for Man United. I, I can't think of a game that he's played where he's been excellent. I think I'm writing a thing at the moment for our Ballon de One Football um, list that, that is upcoming um, and doing a thing on Ashraf Hakimi and how like the role of the fullback has just has been has changed so much in the past decade. And, and Aaron Bazaka sort of seems like He's of another time, really. He's he's clearly quite good defensively and he can tackle. Um, but going forward, he's non-existent. And we saw that yesterday. But then even yesterday, his confidence has clearly been shot. And he was just overawed totally by Grealish and, and um, Cancelo on the left-hand side. Didn't know what to do with Bernardo Silva when he was sort of coming in as well. So... I don't think it's his fault. He's clearly not been really told what to do. Um, but yeah, the Palace must be laughing themselves, laughing to themselves that they got Man United to pay fifty million for him because yeah, he really hasn't looked up to it at the moment. At what point though do you think? Because I think they spent fifty million on them, assuming that a young right back who'd had a very good season for Crystal Palace, yeah, was going to be the future. I mean, you're, when you buy into someone's potential, there's always the possibility that it could go like it does under Wambasaka. But at what point do you look at the coaching beyond it? Because look, it's probably a very worn out phrase, I know, but put Wambasanga, put Wambasaka at City under Pep, and I think he's a different player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's not at City, is that yeah. right, isn't he? Um, <laughs> but surely think, there's a level of coaching that needs to be going into this. You can't yeah, just buy him and expect him to develop. I, I do agree with that. But I think he he's just, yeah, like I said, he's just a very old-fashioned type of right-back. And I think when you're playing at Crystal Palace, he, a lot of teams, especially at last season when Hodgson was the manager, a lot of teams were just going at Palace and there, there were times where Wambasaka could just show how good a tackler he was or how good he was at you know, stopping crosses or whatever. Whereas at Man United, that job, the right-back job, is a completely different type of job. So I think it probably says, it does say something about the coaching. It also says a lot about the scouting at Manchester United. There's no sort of joined-up thinking at all. I mean, Gary Neville's been saying it. Well, he said it yesterday. He said it a million times, but... Man City are just light years ahead of United everywhere, in every aspect of the club. And yeah, Wan-Bissaka is a small part of that, but it's quite indicative of, of where United are, I think. 
Well, talking of English right backs, we'll go from the bad to the unbelievable in Reese James. He returned for the first start this calendar year, putting a blinding performance away at Burnley. Talking of tactics, actually, Lewis, do we give Tuchel's system a lot of praise here because it allows James to get forward and do what he does best? Yeah, I, I think Reese James, or the way that both the both the wing backs play at Chelsea, that's exactly what Alex was just talking about, and the role of a wing back nowadays. They're essentially wingers for for the top teams, and you, you have little variations, I guess, with with Trent Alexander Arnold, and it's all about his delivery and his vision. Um, you know, Jao Cancelo drifting inside instead of going outside, but Reese James is like a proper fully fledged wing back just up and down and these players this, this is what Alex means with Wan-Bissaka and that sort of contrast Reese James in any other generation would not have been a right back he'd have been a right midfielder in a, in yeah, a 4-4-2 yeah. 10 15 20 years ago he'd have been a right midfielder and Aaron Wan-Bissaka would have been a right back back then and I think that's the difference um he's got the uh, James has the technical ability to you know to basically just play as a winger and to have that massive offensive threat like the confidence when he's on the ball in the final third that there's not a moment of hesitation he knows what he wants to do he knows he's got the technical ability to pull it off you saw it with the goal the the calmness to stand there and wait and and get himself in get the ball sat just just right for him before you know like especially against Burnley when you know you might be able to get towards the final third quite quite quickly sometimes against Burnley, but then you get there and you're surrounded anytime you're around the Burnley box. There's five, six players between him and the goal by the time he shoots. And no, he just picks his spot and fires it. I don't think you you don't see Aaron Wan-Bissaka just to go back to that point. You, like, you don't see him doing that. Obviously, Tuchel does deserve credit as well because ever since he came in, Chelsea's usually playing with the three centre-backs and it just gives the... You know, James usually on the right, but it, it says everything that sometimes they've played Hudson Adoy or Pulisic in that position because you've got so much protection behind them and, and inside them. And players, you know, in midfield, you've got players who just do not give the ball away in Jorginho or in Kovacic. You've got Kante as well next to them sometimes. And then you've got three a three man defence, and it means that right back or the left back in, in Alonso or Chilwell when he's fit can get so far forward and really stretch teams and it, they can do it without leaving Chelsea exposed it's it's really if you've got two wing backs like that it's a brilliant way to use them I was thinking that the, about the right midfielder thing he'd definitely play further forward 100% you don't really see you see a lot of wingers who go back a bit um, who sort of earlier on in their career maybe switched to being a fullback, but completely opposite for James and you're right where he scored that goal from was pretty much just outside the six yard box and where he got the assist from yeah, for yeah. Havertz's second was inside the box as well. Yeah, like and you see it with Liverpool as so well. Like the number of times in the past four, three or four years that Robertson has, or, or Alexander Arnold hit a cross and it's Robertson at the back post getting yeah. on the end of it, or, or vice versa. Like the these these players, like they are basically old fashioned wingers now. That's crazy. I think. They're few and far between on a on a global scale. Not every team can have them, but for some reason, England just seem to have them uh, <laughs> in abundance, which could only be a good thing, if not a bit of a selection headache for Gareth Southgate. Um, Alex Havertz, actually, we mentioned there, grabbed two goals, finds himself in brilliant form. I think it's four in the last five or five in the last four. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Does he negate the need to get Lukaku back firing again for Tuchel? Do you know, I actually, what we're just saying there, I think a sort of, 
a tangential point maybe, but with James and Chilwell potentially coming back towards the end of the season, I do think Lukaku was really good at the start of the season when both of those players were fit and sort of getting wide and firing in crosses. And, I, and I'm not sure if Havertz is, will be quite as good as Lukaku with that. So I think he, he would bring more to Chelsea's overall game, but I don't know. I think if, if Lukaku does get back in the team with those two wing-backs or those two full-backs back fit, I think we saw at the start of the season that Chelsea were equally as good doing that. So I, I think it would be harsh on Havertz to lose his place and Lukaku hasn't looked great at the moment. But I do wonder when it comes to sort of April, start of May, what uh, what Tuchel will do with do them because yeah they, I mean it's it's great for Chelsea isn't it they've got options and and Havertz has been brilliant but yeah I, I do wonder what, what will happen when those two fullbacks do get back fit again. Well, next up to Vicarage Road, where Arsenal's three attacking midfielders were the stars of the show, and the supporting act was Alexander Lacazette with two assists. Lewis, do you think this can be his role then to be sort of the enabler of the attacking talents with Saka, Odegaard, Martinelli, and Smith Rowe? Um, his responsibility of being a goal scorer is not really there. Three Premier League goals this season and all the other attacking midfielders have outscored him by some way as well, some of them. Yeah, he's he's been on the end of a few chances recently, but until the last few weeks, he, he hasn't even looked like scoring. Um, not very often anyway. That is his job now to, you know, to, to drag defenders around and to create space that, that Odegaard and Saka and Martinelli can work in. And it's obviously working pretty well for Arsenal, like you say, all three of them on the score sheet. Um, that's without Smith Rose, the top scorer this season as well, usually in, in one of those play, uh, places behind the striker as well. So, yeah, Alex Lacazette, it's pretty obvious to everybody that Arsenal want a striker. And I think in the summer, that will be the, the number one aim for the club, be to sign a striker. And they'll want to sign a striker who does both. A striker who can drop in and link up play, but also gets on the end of things a bit more than Lacazette does and, and has maybe a bit more pace and a bit more ability to beat a man than Lacazette does now as he's as he's turned 30. He's lost a little bit of that. It's, it's interesting, these... His last few games, he's not scoring goals, but his last few games, he's played really, really well. And two, the both, both, the, or all three goals were great, but the two assists from him were lovely. Just, just laying the ball, setting it perfectly for for Saka and for Martinelli to come onto and hit. It, it's a really interesting one. It's really maybe because he's a centre forward and because he's always played as a centre forward throughout his career, no one's really saying that he's a false nine. Whereas if you stick like an attacking midfielder up front and they play like as like a centre forward, like like Havertz has been at Chelsea, everyone calls him a false nine regardless, no, no matter how they actually play. Lacazette actually sort of does play like that now, even though, yeah, he's, he's sort of made his whole career off being a striker. And yeah, it's all about keeping the ball and keeping moves going and drifting out and taking defenders with him so there's space for other players to come into those areas and those players are delivering at the moment when they get there so for now and, and for the remainder of the season he'll be up front for Arsenal but I don't think he'll be the main source of goals at all. Do you, do you think and this probably actually uh, attaches itself onto what we were talking about before about players being in another era I've always thought especially within the last few years that strikers need to do so much more than just either be a link-up player or just a scorer. You need to do everything because the likes of Haaland, the like, likes of Mbappe, Kane as well, are doing it all. So you like need the, someone the to old, do all that. The old 4-4-2, big man, little man. Yeah. Everyone, wants, everyone wants the the one striker to be both of those things Yeah, now. exactly. 
yeah like you say like Kane Haaland like they can they can do it but we're talking about like the guys who really can definitely do it Lukaku is another one we watch him at Inter last year they can all do it but we're talking about like the very few best strikers yeah. in the entire world who can do both things at such a high level yeah it would be very difficult for Arsenal to sign someone like that but you're right it needs to be it needs to be someone who can do that because I think it's not acceptable is the word. It's acceptable for Saka or one of the attacking midfielders to maybe go on a little bit of a goal drought. Um, you know, then maybe not chipping in with as many goals per season. But for the striker to do it is is not acceptable. If you if you're the number one starting striker at a club like Arsenal and you've got three Premier League goals to your name, it's not exactly what you come to expect. Yeah. So you you need someone to do everything. But like you said, it's so difficult to find. I always thought that strikers, it was just about putting the ball in the back of the net, and that was until Thierry Henry came in the Premier League. And I remember watching him do everything like corners, penalties, free kicks, <laughs> dribbles, headers. And I was like, well, hold on. You don't see like, who was around at the time? You don't see Kevin Phillips on corners. You don't see Andy <laughs> yeah, Cole taking free kicks. Like it was, was so weird. Say, that's that's the generational difference as well yeah. I guess, for us now watching football too. I remember being at Highbury and just hearing all the old boys around you like moaning that the striker's taking the corner. Yeah. Like, well, he never scored headers anyway. So what's the point in sticking him in the box if he's the best corner taker? I, I remember watching, I think it was the free kick he scored against Wigan when he sort of made a little mocking face at the referee after he scored it. I believe it was away from, away from home. Yeah, it was, yeah. And I remember thinking, like, he's doing everything. It's not just like the midfielder takes the free kicks and the striker scores. Like, that's what everyone's come to these days. It's probably from watching YouTube compilations of Thierry Henry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but talking of striker scoring good goals, Cucho Hernandez was a stunner. <laughs> this this gave me Peter Crouch vibes. It really did <laughs> um, at Liverpool. It was a great goal, but does this sum up... Watford's season and inevitable relegation, Alex. I mean, moments of quality offset by poor defensive displays. Uh, well, I've, yeah, one-off moments of quality, I must say. I didn't... Uh, Kucho Hernandez is that. someone that's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it was bettered only by Jao Cancelo's uh, that had gone in uh, in the Manchester derby. But yeah, they've... I think they've conceded seven goals in the last three games. They let in four against Palace and three here. For a Roy Hodgson, for a Roy Hodgson team, that's just not good enough because they're not going to score that many goals. I think, although probably four weeks ago, maybe five weeks ago, the three teams that were going down seemed set in stone. That's changed a little bit recently, but I think Watford are Watford and Norwich are now the, the two that are they're definitely down for me. They they looked relatively good at times here, and but yeah, I just. You can't be conceding three goals against at home to Arsenal and, and want to stay up, I'm afraid, especially when you're not scoring that many. So, yeah, I'm afraid to say it well for fans, but I, I don't think you'll be in the Premier League next season. You know, um, you know, scoring is getting a little bit tight and unpredictable when Musa Sissoko grabs two. Yes, yeah, and he, 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 it was a very good finish. As well, <laughs> it was a great finish, but yeah. if you're relying on him to score, you know something's gone wrong yes, up front. Exactly. Uh, talking of a team that did not struggle to score this weekend, and a brilliant win for Aston Villa at home to Southampton, who showed absolutely no sign of their recent good form. I think they'd lost one in ten before the, the trip to Villa Park. Um, Coutinho was on fire in a real Brazilian-style masterclass full of flair, technique, and poetry-like end product. Uh, <laughs> does he join permanently in the summer, Lewis? If bigger teams are into him, does he move there or stay faithful to Villa, who basically gave him this chance to escape Barcelona? Yeah, I, I think I think all parties, it's quite suited for, for Coutinho to join permanently in the summer. I, I, he's still... 
flitting in and out of games. Like you've got these moments of brilliance and you, you did the same against Leeds a couple of weeks ago. Um, but for sort of 10, 15 minutes, he'll run the game. And for the other 75 minutes, you'd see why he's not a Barcelona anymore, I guess. Like yeah. if he played like that, if he played like that for a whole game or for two, three games in a row, then Barcelona, he, he wouldn't have not worked out there. So yeah, I, I don't see after the last few years, I don't see anyone else bigger coming in for Coutinho. I think it suits him as well to, to be the big name and the star at Villa instead. And yeah, it's just that, tricky one for Steven Gerrard to figure out how to fit him in and how to play around him and you got Watkins and Ings and Buendia as well so long term I'm quite interested to see how he figures that out especially when you've got a big name like Coutinho and he is performing on and off I'd say when he's performing well he's performing really well and when he's not it's like he's like they're playing with 10 men and it's a tricky one because you know at Barcelona, it becomes easy in a situation like that to drop Felipe Coutinho, but at Aston Villa, it's not so simple when he's not on his game to take him off. I do, I do wonder what the sort of ceiling on price Aston Villa will sort of set on him because, I mean, what did Barcelona pay? 140 million. Obviously, they're not going to get that, but <laughs> they're, but they're going to want 50, aren't they? Or 55 million, you would have thought. And for Aston Villa, if they're going to pay that sort of money, they need Coutinho to be eight out of ten every week, and he just hasn't been so far. He's been. 10 out of 10 or 4 out of 10. I mean, they lost to Newcastle and Watford back-to-back a few weeks ago. Can't remember anything did in those games. Um, yeah, they need him to be on it and fit for a whole season if they're going to pay that sort of money. And yeah, I guess that's the sort of the maths that they have to do over the summer to see whether it's worth it. But of all the... De Bruyne was brilliant on Sunday. Coutinho was the best player on Saturday in the Premier League. I saw. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. Him and Douglas Luiz really sort of complimenting each other in the middle of the field and it could have been eight or nine they had that many chances so yeah he was he was exceptional on Saturday particularly. As for Southampton they looked a little bit light in the back without uh, Salisu um, he looks like a huge loss to Southampton doesn't he Alex? Yeah he's I've, I, I looked earlier I think he's he's missed two games this season for them and those two games they lost 4-0 to Villa and I think it was a 3-0 who against that's gone out gone off the top of my head but yeah whenever he's not playing they lose and lose pretty badly so yeah he's he's a big big loss for them and they just looked I was surprised actually that they looked totally at sea on on Saturday Villa did play well but Southampton really played into their hands which um yeah, yeah which is interesting to be honest that that run of form has put them in that awkward position in the table now where you know you're not going to get Europe and you know you're not going to get yeah. relegated. And yeah. a lot of teams just they tend sort of, to then for like the last two months, they just go through the motions a little bit. They, they sort of have, Southampton have had this historically with Rahaz and Hero, haven't they? They go on runs and then all of a sudden, I'm thinking <laughs> of like the 9 nils at Leicester yeah. and Man United. Sometimes they just blow up, don't they? Which um, I'm not sure why that is, but yeah, they, they certainly blew up this weekend. Well, you've led me perfectly onto the next game, which is Wolves against Crystal Palace. And if there was ever a trophy for 10th place, this is it. Now, I kid, Wolves Wolves are still with a shout of Europe, but this kind of home form, which now sees them lose three in a row, isn't exactly great. As for Crystal Palace, the three points means this is just excellent. They're 12 points off relegation, 12 points off sixth and 10th. It is the most mid-table thing I have ever heard of. Um, will, will this sort of inconsistency forever be the Achilles heel for Palace, Lewis? Um, they've picked up seven out of nine points. The last time they did that was the end of October, start of November. So a run of two wins and a draw. I was going to say it's been a really long time since Palace looked 
decent. Like they they started the season pretty well, and then they've gone real, through a real blip. I don't know. It was a bit weird. Like they weren't in the relegation scrap, so then I don't know if the foot came off the gas or or if teams started to figure them out a little bit. But uh, yeah, they like they started well against uh, under Patrick Vieira. I think the most impressive thing and the thing that gives you a bit of optimism for them moving forward the next couple of years is just the fact that the squad has changed so much. And you know, I think after last season, it's nice to just be in mid table and not have any concerns about about staying in the league at this point of the season. And then you're looking at that team and some of those young players, Eze and and Elise, obviously the the two that you see so much promise in and you think that yeah maybe a year two years down the line they've put something really really good together it's obviously a bit early for that now yeah but i think i think things look a lot brighter at palace than they've looked for a really long time and and sort of moving ahead in the next couple of years maybe it was they, to do with the also... fact they got rid of 14 players i believe yeah also. and that they've also become a team that if you're a young player say in the football league say i don't know newcastle a, a number of sort of like mid table bottom of the table clubs come in for you and palace are one of them you're going to probably go to palace because you'll know that you'll get games there's not like a, ever a crisis club going from one like bad position to the other do you know what i mean they're they're pretty consistent in who they are and the way they want to play they yeah they sort of after at the end of last season it looked like it might all blow up with all those players out of contract and the manager leaving but yeah it's been quite impressive how they've sort of stabilized themselves in in a relatively short space of time i think well norwich look like they are edging close to the relegation uh, as brentford ran out 3-1 winners at carrow road christian Eriksen was a brilliant influence in the middle uh ivan tony grabbed three goals here two penalties thomas frank the brentford manager said ivan tony is the best penalty penalty taker in the world at this moment in time um I'd be amazed if he's watched every single penalty taker in the world, but, you know, he, li- he likes to do his research. Do you agree, Alex? Who would you have to step up if your life depended on it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't really think of many other penalty takers. Certainly the Premier League are as good as Ivan Tony. Mm. Um, I don't know if you saw Memphis Depay's penalty of the weekend uh, from Barcelona. I did not, well, if you haven't checked that out, do that because it was... Do you, I don't know if you remember from like the mid-90s when Kevin Pressman took one for uh, Sheffield Wednesday. Well, the keeper? Leeds. Yeah, mm. yeah, and he just hit it right in the stanchion. That was oh, what, I do uh, remember. I yes, do, yeah, yeah. That was... Depay did that. Uh, he it. So that, that was pretty impressive. But yeah, Tony, yeah, he's he's a world-class penalty taker, I think. He's been a bit of a big miss for them. Uh, certainly over Christmas, he was injured and he sort of lost a bit of form in January. But yeah, if, if he's on form, then Brentford on form. And they, they sort of look like they're kind of edging away from the uh, relegation zone now, which for a few weeks there, it looked like they might be getting brought back into it. But yeah, I think they're probably, this win was huge. And I think they've probably got enough to, to stay up now, to be honest. I was going to say, that's a massive win for them. And it's also, yeah. it's, it's a bit of a stat pad from Tony there. Getting another three against the relegation <laughs> rival, but you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. I've, I've got to say, after last weekend, if my life depended on it, I would be asking Virgil Van Dijk to take that penalty every single time. <laughs> the audacity to pull that off! Ah, oh, honestly, let's for the sake of Kepper, who may or may not be listening, let's put that one to bed. Um, next up, we go to Newcastle, who are now on an eight-game unbeaten run, astonishingly good form. Uh, I said last week we will no longer talk about them as relegation candidates, but at this point next year. We'll be talking about them as top four contenders. Or is that too optimistic, Lewis? 
Surely not. Where do things have happened? Two or three years from now, maybe, but surely not next year. Yeah, I just, I, I just the one thing I want to say about this game is I saw John Joe Shelby via the official Newcastle account on on Sunday on Twitter. Uh, sort of release one of those sort of almost apologies for his performance. I'm like, if we've reached the point where players are apologising for yeah, misplacing a few crazy, passes in a game that they've won, like, I, don't, I don't want to know what's next. <laughs> Sounds like that, he's a little bit worried about ridiculous. his future. Uh, just absolutely. They're, like you said, they're eight games unbeaten. They've just won again. And... They're busy sharing quotes from players, apologising for misplacing a few balls during the game. Like Everybody needs to grow up. You know what I would say? It's not about you, John Joe. It's not about you, mate. The team's enjoying the three points and everyone's happy. Stop bringing the vibe down. If you want to do better next week, show us. Great. Don't need apologies. You're right for misplaced passes. Can you imagine how many official communications we'd have if every player had a stinker? <laughs> yeah, Christ. at least. Even um, when their teams won, nonsense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, maybe I was a little bit optimistic, but an eight-game run of form after just one transfer window. This is without Chris Wood firing as well. So you imagine if they get a top striker in the summer, maybe European football could be something. I don't know. I'm yeah, out I, there. yeah. I, I, I mean, there's enough sort of bad teams in the Premier League every day. You can definitely see Newcastle maybe top half, and maybe not. Europe might be quite optimistic, but yeah, I do think top half. Mm. I, I have to say, I was pretty sceptical about Eddie Howe when he came in, but I've, I've been very, very impressed. That yeah, the eight games unbeaten is is pretty astonishing as to where they were before Christmas and before and before Howe came in. The way he sort of I don't know the rejuvenation of Joe Linton has been something that I did not see coming at all. Playing him on sort of like the point of a diamond is yeah, that sort of blows my mind that that's happening and working well. But it is. I'd, I felt they were sort of hanging on a little bit towards the end against Brighton, but I mean, how how many times would we have seen Newcastle just completely collapse in the past? So, so hold on for three points. I think so. There's a lot about them and a lot about the work that Howe's doing doing at St James Park. Yeah, it was a, a massive three points, and actually his first victory over a top ten side in Brighton, oh, okay. um, yeah. who had Lewis Dunk on the score sheet. I wanted to talk about him very quickly. I didn't realise he was thirty. I thought he was a little bit younger than this. And that's not to say his best years have passed. Um, but but 12 years in the Brighton first team is one and only club, aside from a short loan spell at Bristol City. Over 330 games, part of the journey from League One to the Premier League. Where do you stand on his career, Alex? Has he played at the best level he can? Or, or will you regret maybe not taking that one step further? The reason I asked is because could he have made the move that Dan Byrne made? <laughs> I don't know. Lewis Dunk seems like quite an unfashionable footballer for me, and I'd, and sometimes you get unfairly tarnished with mm. those brush, like, sort of brush, don't you? And I think Lewis Dunk does that. But I mean, you just have to sort of look at the stats. Whenever he plays, he's captain. It doesn't matter what manager Brighton have had over the past few years. He's always been captain and centre back, and and he always plays when he's fit. And I think that sort of consistency. Yeah, you can't really say much more. I think he seems like the sort of player that's totally optimised his career as as much as possible, really. I, to go from League One to the Premier League, that's not an easy jump to make. And he's sort of made it look relatively easy whenever he's played. So, yeah, good for him. And and into the England senior team as well. Got exactly. a couple of caps under his name yeah. too. I, I, I think he's a good player. I think maybe maybe a bigger team could have picked him up. But um, that's no disrespect to Brighton at all. But <laughs> no, and there's something... There's something special about being a one-club man as well. Yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a little bit more rare these days. 
who knows? No, yeah, yeah, and he's yeah, he's I think he's decent. So yeah, when you said he's thirty years old, that did actually surprise me a little bit. Mm. But yeah, I think he's uh, he's not he's old. done about as much as he could have done. Yeah, yeah. Being thirty is is fine in footballing years. All the all the scientific technology these days will be fit as a fiddle <laughs> yeah, for exactly. years to come. Yeah, exactly. Um, next up, and to Anfield. This is probably the furthest down on the list. We'll have li- uh, have a Liverpool match. I feel like if Liverpool were this low on match of the day, the BBC would be inundated with abuse. <laughs> um, the reason being is it was a sort of generic one nil victory. I know it had all the billings of quite a big game with West Ham in the top four hunt, and obviously Liverpool trying to chase down Manchester City. But it was Sadio Mane's goal that was the difference. Um, but another impressive performance for Luis Diaz, who is an absolute baller do you think that Jurgen Klopp expected him to bed in so quickly Lewis um has he given himself a selection headache sooner than expected or was this always part of the recruitment plan yeah I I don't think he probably expected him to have this much of an impact and look this sharp this quickly uh yeah I mean what Firmino's 30 Mane's that side of 30 now as well Salah's contract's expiring next year if he doesn't sign a new one and in Jota and and Diaz Liverpool look like they're not going to have any problems incredibly replacing this front three that's you know led them to the Champions League and the Premier League title in recent years so it, to to have two-thirds of that replaced long term and I suspect Salah will sign a new contract and, and stay as well so you've sort of got Mane and Firmino replaced anyway so you've got a brand new front three or two alongside Salah is just ridiculous so like massive massive hats off to Liverpool for managing to do that he, he's hit the ground running like you say like he, he clearly fits the the way of playing perfectly and yeah I mean I, I would not like to be having to pick Liverpool's front three when everybody's fit if they you know get to a decisive Champions League semi-final or something and or, or when they go to City away later on in the season in the league I would not like to have to tell two of them that they're not going to be in the lineup. Oh yeah I get the feeling that obviously it's going to help now with Liverpool still going in all four competitions we're having one one we've got three to play for I get the feeling he would have been a preferred summer signing but yeah, the yeah, pressure from Spurs wanted, sort of made, yeah, them, made yeah. them act, basically. Yeah. So not only have Spurs allowed them to get a great player, but he's also hit the ground running. It makes you sick. Makes me sick anyway. <laughs> um, we'll move on to Leicester Leeds, the final and ninth game of the Premier League this weekend. Um, Alex, do we see any improvement on Leeds post-Bielsa? Post-match dressing down yeah, on mean... the pitch aside? Yeah, uh, well, they didn't. They conceded only one goal, which is clearly an improvement on what had happened in the previous month or so. Um, yeah, I was, I was actually quite impressed by how quickly they they'd adapted to Marsh and, and what he'd done. I, I thought they probably could have come away with a point, and that would have been a fair result. I, yeah, I, I actually, I didn't mind the the huddle. I thought that was uh, that was all right. I was, saw Gabby Agbon Lahore on oh. Talksport this morning. No, he wasn't too pleased about it. But of yeah, I, I thought it was uh, yeah, I thought it was quite a nice little touch. But I mean, it's a huge few weeks now for for Leeds. I've just got their fixtures up now. They've got Aston Villa Thursday, then Norwich, then Wolves, then Southampton, then Watford. Yeah, so that takes them up to the beginning of April. I think. By the by, yeah, by the ninth of April on that Watford game, I think we'll really know then whether they are properly in a relegation battle or not. But I think, I, as it, it was sad for me when Bielsa left, but I think a change really did have to be made. It, 
there, there was it, he just wasn't getting through to players anymore, and and the way it's the dogmatic way that he was playing just clearly wasn't working. So I think they probably made a change just at the right time, and yeah, this the green shoots of recovery are definitely there from from this result for me. Well, this performance, I this result. So the green shoots of recovery. We shall there check if they've bloomed <laughs> later on in the season. Yeah. Uh, we'll move on though to our hot topics of the week because that was all the games that have been played this weekend. This is this is Monday afternoon right now. So um, so Tottenham against Everton is tonight. Should we? Look, we'll look back on this next week when Deli Ali has inevitably come back to North <laughs> yeah. London. To, to Antonio Conte said, "No player ever comes back to haunt me." I mean, does, does he know the history of Spurs? Does he want to stoke these fires even more? But there are um, things you don't say. There yeah. are things you don't say, and that is definitely one of them. But we shall move on to the hot topics for this week. So the first one this week is the Champions League and what it will look like in 2024. Of course, the legs, uh, the second legs of the round of 16 return this week with some massive games. And I just wanted to get your takes on the brand new Champions League format. And more than that, I was hoping one of you could explain it to me because <laughs> I honestly, I'm looking through it. See this, this, um, this sort of list of, of rules and new regulations that's going around. 36 teams in total, so it's four more than before. Group stage are replaced by one big league table, which sounds, you know what this sounds like? It sounds on like the old Pro Evo. When you, see yeah. it like, you could just put like as many, as many teams in one league. Uh, it says each team plays 10 games in the first phase, but how do they decide against who? If everyone's in one table. I think a, I think a draw. I think some sort of draw. Because yeah. I, I I was looking at it thinking, imagine in the Premier League, like you only sort of played a few of them. I don't have the patience to look at a thirty-six team league table. Yeah, imagine that scrolling <laughs> down just to find out your bottom. Oh god, save my time. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's so there's a hundred additional games, which is also mental. Yeah, that uh, seems crazy, doesn't it? How, how can that even so be possible? Not. Four yeah. is so every game, every team is playing ten group stage yeah, exactly. games. Like the group stage already gets boring now when you get to the fifth and sixth games. And I think, yeah, I'm, like everyone, everybody, the managers, the clubs, the players, complains about playing too much football. So they're going to add more Champions League games that aren't even like knockout games or anything. It doesn't make any sense. And there's another knockout round yeah. on top of it. So the top eight sides will qualify. Makes sense, right? Top eight. Um, then the teams finishing ninth to 24th will compete in a two-leg playoff. This means if you finish 24th out of 36, you can still win the Champions League. This is like Portugal winning the Euros after finishing third and being one of the best-placed <laughs> third teams. How, like Right now, when you go through, you are 16th out of 32. So technically, you can finish halfway and still win the Champions League. But finishing 24th. Anyway, then you play a two-leg playoff to get into the last 16, which is then yeah. two-leg playoffs and all of this. I mean, is there any need? Is there any need for this? Well, I mean, I mean, there clearly isn't, but I, I guess this has sort of been rushed through because of the Super League, hasn't it? And there were already calls last, yeah, when, when, it, when it all kicked off last year with the Super League, calls for more meaningful games with the big clubs and that sort of stuff. And I think that has sort of been the catalyst for this. And especially with the Super League being sort of talked about again last week, I I can understand why they're doing it. Obviously, it's totally needless. 
if it was up to me, I'd just go back to the old European Cup. But that, yeah. that's just me. Um, but I can I can sort of understand why they're doing it. But I'm going to be sort of fascinated and horrified as to how they're going to try and fit these extra games into the calendar because it's just going to all these yeah, it's be pretty crazy. All these big clubs as well, where it's like they even in a six-team group stage, they all get through. Like they might wobble, like Real Madrid this year and I think last year as well. Like they had a wobble in the group stage. And now you can have a wobble for like five games and you've still got five more games to make up for it. It's just that's just awful, I think. Like it it's like just so geared towards making sure all of the top teams definitely get into the knockout rounds, which just feels completely unfair. And I also feel like it's capitalizing on the fact that some managers obviously this happens a little bit um, more towards the the business end of the season start to prioritise the Champions League and you'll see you know you'll see Pep and Klopp maybe put out a weaker team on a Saturday afternoon if they're at home to you know a lesser side of the Premier League and they're prioritising the Champions League and I think this is basically what they're banking on is the fact that the Champions League will just become so important that you'll see the first team every Tuesday and Wednesday night and then if you turn up on the weekend at home to Watford no disrespect you'll see you know the sort of the reserves but but then it'll work the other way as well like you've got like man city and you've got a 10 a 10 game group stage and you like you said all the top 24 could all go through anyway obviously you want to be in the top eight uh to to go automatically into the round of 16 but say man city win their first four games or their first five games in the group stage they're just going to rest everybody for the for the whole second half of that group stage instead yeah. and and then have those play like the first team sort of playing the premier league games at the weekend so that anybody who gets off to a really good start in the group stage is going to end up throwing games, basically. I think by the end of it, uh, yeah, which doesn't doesn't speak too much to the fairness of the competition, maybe as well. If if you're playing you know, certain teams in the that second run of five games and, and certain fixtures, so yeah, I don't know. It's a it's hard to get your head around who actually wants this, um, other than well, I mean, the richest clubs in the world, which yeah. is why we're going to get it. Yeah, exactly. But don't let it stop you enjoying the Champions League this week. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be some tasty right? ties. Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be lots of excitement this week. Um, my next hot topic was not really a question. It was just um, a public service announcement from the Champions League to the Championship. If you have not seen Ravel Morrison's goal oh, for yes. Derby this yes. weekend, get online, get on your phone, get on YouTube and check it out. Is the build-up play, the movement, the quality of finish is so ridiculous that inevitably you'll see that old Rio Ferdinand quote about how he was the best player he's ever seen at Man United. I, I'll be honest, I didn't know he was at Derby. I thought he got released from Sheffield United and that was it. No, he's yeah, he's sort of been he's been actually doing all right for Derby since Christmas. He's um he's really turned it on, but yeah, that that goal was pretty special, wasn't it? I, I, it's his first goal in English football for eight years, I think. Wow. Um, yeah, he's. I was going to give my best at doing like a live rerun commentary of it (laughs) and being like, it's Morrison, but just thought, no, I'll save it (laughs) and wait for everyone else to just view that exquisite, that exquisite touch. It was just, ah, the football was magic. Wayne Rooney doing a a pretty good job at Derby. But this, this does bring me on to my question of the week. The final one might be a bit of a tactical discussion for you. Does Erling Haaland at Manchester City work? This is what I want to know. So, uh, earlier on this week, uh, well, it's the beginning of the week, Monday, talk about 
Erling Haaland potentially having his future, in, certainly in his mind, made up within the next few weeks or so. Um, according to reports, I've seen Ornstein talk about it. I believe we were talking about it. Lewis, it's Madrid or City, um, regardless of the Mbappe situation. So Erling Haaland at Manchester City, does it work? I, I think it works better than trying to stick him and Mbappe next to Benzema <laughs> and tr- and figuring out I'm how to play all three of them. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think it works. I think it works. I think everyone talks about Pep Guardiola and not playing with a striker. Um, but I think that's down to the, the quality of players he's always had available to him and the quality of strikers as well. I think you'd like. I think it's a position where he won't compromise. Either he has to have a world-class player or he'd rather not play with one. Um, and people forget a little bit, I think, that you know he's obviously all that time with Messi uh, at Barcelona. If you've got Lionel Messi, you put Lionel Messi where you think you can get the most out of him. And that was down the middle. So, you know, that's how that happened. And then he's obviously played most of the last couple of years now without a striker at Man City. He spent every single year at Bayern Munich with Robert Lewandowski playing centre-forward every day. Because, you know, he had a world-class striker and he didn't... You know, people talked about, oh, is that going to be an issue? Um, them, Them two sort of how are they going to play it was after Guardiola's first season that Lewandowski arrived and he'd had the season before sometimes Muller sometimes Goetzer up front um he didn't hesitate to to play Lewandowski up front and play him in every single game so I, I don't think Guardiola will have any problem fitting him in and I don't think Holland will have any problem fitting in either I think when he joined Dortmund two years ago he was still a little bit raw and he was exceptional in the box. And other than that, I think he could look a little bit, especially because of his frame, look a little bit clumsy mm. uh, with his touch. And But over the two years at Dortmund, he's come on massively. I think he's so, so much better. Uh, his sort of all-round game is so much better, holding the ball up and bringing others into play uh, than it was when he arrived at the club. And he's so unselfish as well. I think people look at that goal record and you think... That he's probably, you know, especially when some of the interviews he's done and he's so charismatic and people compare him to Zlatan Ibrahimovic um, and that sort of thing. But there's no selfishness about him. He, he plays for the team and you know, you've seen a number of times at Dortmund where he goes through on goal and someone's alongside him and he'll just square it for them to have a tap in. So he wants to score constantly, but I don't think there's actually that much ego that will get in the way of, of fitting into a team nicely. So, yeah, I... I think it'd be terrifying for the rest of the Premier League to imagine him up front in this Man City side but I think he could do it absolutely no problem. Do you think he might be the player who sort of the attacks being forced to being built around Alex or do you think that they'd be able to sort of suit him perfectly yeah because the thing is at the minute is that players can quite easily interchange in this Manchester City lineup. Whether you've got yeah. Bernardo Silva in the middle or Sterling or Foden. With Haaland there becomes far more of a focal point and also almost the necessity to feed him with the chances. Do you think that's going to be an issue or not? Um I think Pep is a good enough coach and Haaland is a good enough player that honestly yeah. I, I I can see why on paper that, that it might seem that that would be an issue, but in practice, I honestly don't think it would be. I think, yeah, the, a world-class coach gets the, gets the best out of his world-class players. And I think that's what Pep Guardiola is. And like Lewis said, he did it with Lewandowski at Bayern Munich and I'd see no re- reason why it wouldn't work at, at Man City. I, I just wonder if he sees 
the Premier League as like the final step or yeah. probably more pertinently, yeah. does Mino Raiola see the Premier League as the final step? I wonder if they see Real Madrid and, and La Liga as it is at the moment as this, don't take offence to the Spanish and La Liga watchers, <laughs> but it's a bit of a soft touch and Haaland could score 45 goals a season in, in La Liga for me. And I wonder I'll if he it. does that. Yeah, and then I wonder if he does that for three years and then he can get double the wages at Manchester City or Paris Saint-Germain in three years' time. I, Riola if, is, a, is a super agent because he, he's playing forward each S and he's four, 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 place, four moves ahead of most people. So, yeah, I, I wonder if that is... That's the, that's the, the thing, isn't it? Bit, yeah. Like, yeah. The Premier League clubs and, and City, obviously, in particular, have got so much money that if you do think of it for Riola as, as a financial choice, there's nowhere to go after that. And like, there's yeah. no, there's no big transfer payday after you go to Man City. Like, Man City will never sell you. So, uh, yeah, I do. I think Alex is right. I think that's the big. That will be the big question: is if they want to make that jump to sort of that top top level now, or if they'd actually be happy taking a, a bit. I mean, Real Madrid like the biggest club in the world, so it's not you know, no, yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. no. But but still financially, especially, and and maybe if you compare, yeah, the Premier League to La Liga, it is still maybe a little a step in between uh, from the Bundesliga to there. I think that I think that would be really interesting to see. Because I, I, I think if he goes to Man City, we'll all sit back and say like, that's it. Then for ten years, he's going to play for Man City. If he plays for Real Madrid, I don't think we will say that. I think if he went to Real Madrid, yeah. we'd all be looking at Man City or Man United three or four years down the line as, as it, another it, move he could make. It is going to be absolutely fascinating to see him and Mbappe in the same team. That would just be... It, that I mean, it, it would be, be great. A, yeah. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? It yeah. really would. Yeah, it would be amazing. Well, I would love to see him in the Premier League because that just yeah. would be more interesting. But also, yeah, you could see him... There's something about the link-up, the Galacticos, the history at Real Madrid that'd be amazing. Yeah. But Real Madrid fans, fear not, because if he does go to Man City, you can catch him in one of the 340 Champions League games against <laughs> Real Madrid per season. So it's practically like he's playing at your club anyway. Um, <laughs> but I think that's a resounding yes that Harlem will work out at City. Of course, you guys can tweet me the answer to that question and anything else uh, at Matt underscore Froelich on Twitter or at OneFootball as well. You can drop us an email with any of your suggestions and feedback that you may have about the podcast. The address is podcast at onefootball.com. But that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests as always. I hope you've enjoyed listening and uh, we'll be back again next week. So see you then. 